Welcome to the About Sex podcast, where we discuss sex. Um, my name is Angela Skirtu, and I'm a licensed marriage and sex therapist. And today, our guest is Jessica Nasland. Is that how you pronounce it? Naisland. Oh, so sorry, Naisland. Of course I screwed it up. So she is part of Empowered, a center for sexuality. She's a licensed clinical social worker and an ASEC certified sexuality educator who teaches and provides therapy for all individuals. She's also an adjunct professor in the UMSL Succeed program, teaching healthy relationships and sexuality as in and is in private practice at, and president of Empowered, a center for sexuality. Wow, that was a mouthful. Right? <laughs> I know, that's right. Yeah, I know, right? Well, so thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So what got you into the field? Why? What made you interested in becoming a sex educator? Yeah, sex educator. Right. So when I was in high school, I knew I wanted to be the president of my own clinical practice. Like I already said it, wrote it down in the yearbook, but I didn't know where I wanted to be in that. Like you field. literally signed that on people's yearbooks. You know, like, I literally like, what do you want to be in 10 years or what oh, do you okay. want to be grow up? Like that was on there. Okay. Interesting. Right? I know. So I just like met my life goal. Sweet. Um, so I wanted to do something in the psychology field, but I wanted to be able to do it for life. And I looked at all of these different things and abuse and drug addiction and all of these other pieces. And they were, they were too much. I yeah. They're pretty they, intense problems to deal with. They suck their soul. <laughs> they, well, they suck the people's soul yeah. that are going through it. Right. Yeah. And they're vicarious <laughs> trauma. I always think like the green mile and you're mm-hmm. sucking this kind of out of people at times. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You take it on. I think therapists take it on. Absolutely. And I want to be able to cough it up each time. And there are certain practices. I mean, there are certain places in the therapy world that um, it's very difficult to not have vicarious trauma and working in that field. So you don't feel like you get that in your field now? Not as much. Um, I think in the beginning, I worked a lot. Um, I volunteered for the Coalition Against Rape and Domestic Violence when mm-hmm. I was in college. Um, I volunteered at the YWCA. I was a sexual assault response team member and a practicum student there. And I went to the hospitals in the middle of the night mm-hmm. with victims and survivors. So, so you've um, definitely done a few positions that put you in that position to kind of take on some trauma, but absolutely. I think the more trauma that I took on were working in group homes with teenagers. Oh yeah. Why is that? Because they didn't have a lot of family that consistently visited them. They were oh. starting in their lives. They weren't allowed to date. They weren't allowed to do things. They weren't allowed to date. What a waste of your teenage years. (laughs) Why were they allowed to date? I had to advocate for um, them to attend a dance. And I had to drive myself and actually even staff to attend to make sure they didn't go off and have sex in the bathroom. (laughs) That's a pretty big job for them. (laughs) No, and me too, right? I'm only five foot tall. I'm not that scary. Well, you know, you could always see that thing they do in the Catholic school, like leave some room for the Holy Spirit. (laughs) (laughs) That's so goofy. Uh, yeah, I definitely think I wanted to be in the field, um, uh-huh. but I wanted to do something fun. So I thought my first sexuality class in college, I was like, yes, this is it. Yeah, right? sex is definitely really fun. So what do you find yourself doing now? Um, so now I do, I wear many hats, I guess. So I'm a certified sexuality educator by the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. And I'm in supervision to supervise other educators in the area. So... Um, that's a big part of what I do, although um, I don't talk about it very much. Um, I am currently in private practice at Empowered, a center for sexuality. I'm the president there. I mm-hmm. do therapy, 
Right. with couples, individuals, and families. So what's the difference, because um, I'm a sex therapist, mm-hmm. uh, what's the difference you would say between a sex educator and a sex therapist? Because we both have a certification. It's just different classifications, right? Right. So I'm curious. So I don't think there's much of a difference. Okay. I think there's a lot of education in therapy. Mm-hmm. And I also think that education is a way to be able to connect with people um, in the broad sense and therapy, you sit down one-on-one in mm-hmm. education. You're usually teaching a group or a room You get okay. used to individual personality, cultural differences. So then when you're a room in a room alone with someone, you mm-hmm. better connect with them and understand. So I think that's kind of where education has played into my therapy. Mm-hmm. Do I think there's much difference between sex therapist and a sexuality educator? Not with my therapeutic background Mm -hmm. as a licensed clinical social worker. So why do you think you chose one versus the other? It was less expensive. (laughs) (laughs) That's Um, so true. It's so expensive to become a sex therapist. But I think it's totally worth it. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I just happen to have um, two children right at the end of grad school, Mm -hmm. right getting my licensed clinical social work. Um, supervision and going through that licensure process. And I thought one at a time, Jessica, one at a time. <laughs> like one kid teaching. at a time, right. <laughs> one baby. Cause I think, I feel like our practices could be like our babies too, you know? <laughs> oh, this was my baby. Yeah. I started the practice right as I got pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, and interesting timing, or, or especially like for maternity in, leave. <laughs> right. I pretty much had to go right back to work within a week and a half. Oh my goodness. Um, Were you I, okay? <laughs> yeah. I just did part-time work. I just made okay. sure that I did it as I needed to. And I had, um, my family for support here and there. And I just go out for a couple hours at a time and do therapy and then come back home. So what are some of your favorite issues to work on right now? Um, I love advocacy. I love the systems change piece, right? I work individually and that's wonderful. I can watch individual change in lives. Mm-hmm. But the when I watch a whole community change, I think that's really inspiring. How do you help a community change? So I'm like, um, I'm totally breaking mm-hmm. down your entire job. You need to tell me what to do. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let's see. When I was in practicum, um, in practicum, I decided to work with YWCA. And I had a choice in working on two projects. One of them was the Safe Circle Coalition. This was in 2010, okay. 2009, 2008. <laughs> Somewhere I don't around. think anybody's going to fact check you. Thank you. Gosh. <laughs> um, right, so sometime in that period doing this practicum, I joined the Safe Circle Coalition. Um, and it is a group of 19 different agencies in the St. Louis area that work to prevent sexual abuse, abuse against people with intellectual disabilities. While working at the YWCA Sexual Assault Center, we wanted to really think about how we were impacting the community. And one way we could really work towards affecting change was work with intellectual disability community. Is there a lot of abuse in the um, intellectual disability community that's happening? What, what, What do you see? So we see a lot of boundary violations. Okay. I didn't know that I wasn't allowed to touch her boob. I didn't know that I wasn't allowed to play with myself in the bathroom. Okay. I see. So some things they just don't know, like that they're making mistakes and that like if they kind of had some social skills, they would learn a little bit. Absolutely. Unintentional abuses, it sounds like. Absolutely. So in in working with folks with intellectual disabilities, um, especially when thinking about the autism spectrum, for instance, 
um, they may have difficulties interpreting social cues. Mm. So they may violate boundaries more often than others. Mm -hmm. And if they can't read facial expressions and people are not verbally telling them a yes or a no, Mm -hmm. it can be very difficult to understand what's going on in a situation, especially a sexual one. And in this time in our lives, um, we really need to be thinking about um, how, I don't know, it's so grave of a mistake these days. Mm -hmm. Um, You make a sexual violation against someone and you are pinned to the wall. And yes, Mm. in one way, I see that is very much necessary because people need to be held accountable. They've hurt someone. Sure. But on the other hand, I mean, if they didn't know what they were doing, they made a mistake. How, how does that affect their lives going forward? It kind of rem- reminds me of like teenagers, uh, you know, like I've, I've had a few teenagers who maybe made stupid mistakes and I really do think they're stupid mistakes. They're not intentional things, but like I had this kid who masturbated in front of his open min- window just because he was, a breeze. <laughs> he was kind of excited. <laughs> But like somebody passed by and saw him and then suddenly he's like, they're thinking this kid's assaulting him. And really, you know, it was a dumb kid move. That's the reality. Ignorance (laughs) versus maliciousness. Yeah. I think that's really important intent. Absolutely. So when I think about the safe circle coalition that started, um, we all started in this room talking about this issue that nobody was really consistently addressing Mm -hmm. and the sexual assault center wasn't seeing these folks and the agencies weren't um, consistently working through their um, lines of communication to understand how to deal with the abuse that was occurring. Mm -hmm. And so when everybody kind of connected together, all of a sudden these grant monies funded trainings and um, they funded a grant funded program in St. Louis city and County that now offers free sexuality education, people with intellectual disabilities. Like classes for them. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Where do they, where do they need to go if they want to find this? (laughs) Um, So that is the shade program, sexual health and disability education through the YWCA. Okay. Christina Manessis, my mentor, mm-hmm. uh, she works there. Um, that's where I did my practicum, and I helped start and name the program and grew it like my baby <laughs> and then moved on. And <laughs> Christina and Kayla are doing a great job running mm-hmm. the program over there. So what um, – I think in your paper you said something about – uh, things people to know need to know about disability and how that affects sexuality. Um, so I'm kind of curious, what are your thoughts about how either short-term disability or long-term disability affects sexuality? Okay. So in my particular field, I'm working a lot with folks with intellectual disability, which would be consider a long-term disability. Mm-hmm. And how they affect sexuality could be in the way they are able to socialize. Okay. Many people with disabilities... Um, intellectual disabilities, disabilities long-term, are um, protected, right? Their community keeps them protected always, and they usually have some ability to control their environment. Their their community has some ability to control their environment. When you have a long-term intellectual, a long-term deb- okay. intellectual disability, I mean, at some point, they can take away your own rights, and they can be your guardian, and you can be your own guardian. You can't be your own guardian. You can't say yes to sex. You have to ask permission. I've had oh, to help wow. people write notes. I would like to be sexual to their guardians. Guardian. Yes. Oh or my to their goodness. That's gonna be awkward. Your parents, hey, I want to get a blowjob today. Is that cool? <laughs> right? Like how? How I do you handle that? Know. I don't even. I've never asked. I would that. never want to talk to my dad or my mother about that. No, not that. And I'm, I'm a 35 year old woman, man. Right, and I've got people my age having to ask for 
to be able to be sexual. That's got to be really difficult, actually. It can be. And also then you being on the line to measure whether or not they can give consent. Yeah. I always wonder about that because, you know, like I think everybody wonders about that, you know, how, what, and what mental capacity do you have to be to give consent? But what if you're both around the same mental capacity too? There was this whole, I don't know if you saw the movie long ago, the other sister. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it was a really good interpretation of this, that like she had an intellectual disability and she was dating another guy with an intellectual disability. But of course the mom's like, you guys can't have sex. You're taking advantage of her. And it's not, I mean, it wasn't quite that, you know, like they loved each other. And my guess is, and not that you have to love each other to have sex either, by the way, you're allowed to have sex if you want. (laughs) You do you. (laughs) 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 But still, I couldn't imagine, like, what what does it sound like then? Like, what are the different outcomes? Without telling me specific stories, like what do parents do or how do they react? Well, um, so some parents are okay as long as there are boundaries set. Okay. You need to, um, you need to think about birth control. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the biggest issues when I think about parenting someone with an intellectual disability. Mm-hmm. Is they're thinking about are they going to make more babies and am I going to have to take care of them? That makes that makes perfect sense. So one of the biggest questions that I huh. often answer in family trainings and parent trainings is how do I sterilize my kids? <laughs> Ouch. How do I? And what about what if the sure kid doesn't want that? Right. That's a tough top. How do you handle? Wow, this is so complex. Like, mm-hmm. what happens then? Okay, so then <laughs> you have to remember this? that you don't walk their path. You have to remember to give choices and consequences. As a therapist, that's your job. You're not there to give value. So the question, and you're not there to tell people what to do, exactly. but you're you're there to create a path that they can follow. I'm not living their life. I don't know what that would feel like to wake up every day and be helping people do personal care. And then they also have a child that you're doing personal care for. Yeah. They can't drive to and from school. And they already, the parents I can imagine are already in a position where they feel like, you know, I've got to take care of this person pretty much for the rest of my life. I don't know if I want a second person on top of that. So I answer their questions. Okay. In the best way that I can. I help them to understand um, Mm -hmm. that there are, there, there is a whole gamut of ways that we can protect ourselves against, um, Mm -hmm babies and sexually transmitted infections and diseases. Mm-hmm. Right? And so there are different kinds of birth controls that are more long-term that are not forever. Okay. Right? Um, but there are more forever options. And then it may be my job then to discuss that with their child mm-hmm. and what their options will be. Like if you want to have sex, then you have to get a vasectomy. Boom. Right. And then that's, do they, I mean, what do the, do the kids say? Yes. Do they, some of them do. Some of them say, I really don't ever want children. Right. So when I teach, okay. I teach healthy relationships and sexuality at the university of Missouri, St. Louis in their transitional succeed program. Mm-hmm. And there are kids in that class that tell me, I never want to have children. Jessica, why am I learning about sex and making babies? I'm like, cause you're in my class and you have to, but also because it is very important to know all of the choices you have in this world and all of the potential consequences. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, and even just to know how to prevent it if they don't want right. to, you know, it doesn't mean they can't get sterilized, but that should be their choice. Yes. Okay. To a certain extent, there are some folks that are not able to give consent because they're not their own guardians. Mm-hmm. Then that is a huge, huge fuzzy. Sometimes they still are not able to make that choice on their own because they are not their own guardians. Does that mean then their parent gets to decide 
that they're going to sterilize their kid. Yes. And they have to just go with it. It's a certain level of guardianship. There are different levels of guardianship. Sometimes it's just over legal things. Um, sometimes it's just over their money. Okay. And sometimes it's over everything. And if it's over wow. everything, then that includes medical issues. And medical issues mean that if I choose and if the doctor agrees, then my child can be sterilized without their consent. And I'm the guardian. And I say so. Have a, Has anybody ever fought that? Like... I mean, I'm just curious, you know, like, what if you, like, somebody really does want a kid and their parents fighting for them to be sterilized? Have you ever had, like, a situation like that? So not a situation where they're fighting to be sterilized, but the... To notice, to fighting, the parents may be fighting to keep them sterile, but the the child want, or the adult wanting to have their own kids. And there's a situation where a young woman may not have understood consent and was sexual with another person and was pregnant and the mom wanted her to have an abortion but they told the mom that if she went to the clinic they would explain to her daughter exactly what was going to be happening during the procedure and if they explained to her daughter what was going to be happening during the procedure the mom was afraid that the daughter would say no to it because yeah. she always wanted a baby oh the daughter always did always wanted a baby and but she's getting one right <laughs> that yeah. is really complex Absolutely. <laughs> right? huh. so you can't you can't make decisions for people when it comes to those kind of things that you don't know what paths they walk and i think in sexuality and in the work i do i think a lot about that you don't know what path this person is walking if i'm if i'm working with a dom i know about things that i should think about in terms of safety planning but what i don't do you- walk her path what do you mean a dumb, like a dominant person? No, like a dominatrix. Like oh, a okay. Professional dumb, Some right? people might not know what oh, that yes, is. Yeah. Absolutely. So a pro- professional dominatrix. Okay. <laughs> um, right. So I work with all people, right? Not just folks with intellectual disabilities. And we all need safety plans. Um, and we all, we all need access. What kind of safety plan might you make with a dom? <laughs> well, I would tell her to vet people online. I tell her to check out their social media accounts, um, anything she can. And if she can do a background check on them without their social security number, Hmm. if there's a way. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I've heard from people who do kind of that work or sex work that sometimes Mm -hmm. they'll meet them in a public place first to see if they get a good vibe for them. But I mean, a background check could be a lot better. So we didn't talk about the temporary able-bodied. So like, what do you see happening in terms of sex with people who kind of have the temporary temporarily disabled um, situation. Temporarily disabled? I see a lot of anger. Okay. A lot of anger. Like what's an example of what ha- what would happen there? Like a scenario where somebody's temporarily lost their abilities. Oh, so what about right after pregnancy? Okay. Uh, in childbirth? <laughs> How about that? When you squeeze a baby out? Okay. You're temporarily unable to have sex. Or like you've had such so. trauma in huh. that area. That you are now numb from the anesthesia. Okay. Right? That could be an issue. Mm-hmm. Right? You can't feel your parts. So what do you do in those situations? Or what do you guide people to do? So I guide people to think about their sexuality in a different way, not just penetration. Mm-hmm. But what are the other parts of your body that are sensual, that are sexual, that turn you on? Right? That are not the areas that are unable to be felt at the time. Why do you think people get so angry about it since you mentioned it? (laughs) Because they, I think that we, I think that temporarily able-bodied people have this idea that 
all their shit should be able to work when they want it to. And when it doesn't work when they want it to, they get pissed off. Right? So, like, my shit is not working. I'm going to be super mad. Mm-hmm. Right? Because it's worked all the way up until now. Yeah. It's like it's almost something happening to you as opposed to... Um, in, like, a grieving process, right? Yeah. For those that then have an injury that they have to consistently work with. Right? Mm-hmm. So they've had a traumatic childbirth. Well, you know, um, honestly, I was thinking of that temporary, like disabled or able-bodied and like there's sometimes when people aren't sure if they're temporary or permanent like um for example you get into a car accident and you're starting to having chronic pain or um you know like there are ways that people can have injuries that and there's this process it's a weird process where you're kind of going back and forth like is this going to be forever is this temporary is this something like I, I know a lot of physical therapists and a lot of times what they'll talk about is this is something you'll have to manage but it won't be cured and I think that's a really hard space for people to be, um, especially if they weren't disabled before that happened. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because you still have the memories. It's like a phantom limb. Yeah. You still have the memories of before. You still feel it and understand how, what it felt like and mm-hmm. then don't have access to it anymore or don't have the ability to, to achieve it anymore. That mm-hmm. is a very devastating thing. Absolutely. And, and... And right. There is ways to crawl out of that darkness. There are ways to then come alive again and make your body. Well, Jessica, tell everybody how to crawl out of the darkness. Why don't you? (laughs) Oh my gosh. I think that everybody crawls out of the darkness in their own way. Some people get a ladder. Right. Some people get a rope. Some people crawl the shit their way to the top. Right? Some people burn it all to the ground. That's my approach. <laughs> Start over. <laughs> no. Um, That's terrible. Sometimes. <laughs> I think that there has to be a grieving process mm-hmm. in order to let go of what was. Right. Especially when things aren't going to be the same anymore. Mm-hmm. And then there has to be a renewal, like a phoenix, right? It burns uh, it to ash. Out of the ashes. <laughs> right, the phoenix, right? Mm-hmm. I think sex lives would be the same thing when we go through different things in our lives, right? That change the way we can express our sexuality. I almost think it's like we have uh, several deaths throughout our life and they're not all actual deaths, you know, like the death of a marriage that once was a death of the old way of living. Like we change so much in our lives. Mm-hmm. And so I do, I kind of see them as a death and a rebirth. Like, and then even when death actual happen, actually happens like a death of a parent or a loved one, then it really like changes people's psyche. Um, so I don't know. Maybe life is just this like continual <laughs> like rebirth process. and rebuilding. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and I think that each of these things also affect us in our own way. There's some people that can grow and move quickly past things and there are other people that can't do you notice any differences between the two like what's the kind of person that can um rebuild quickly versus the one who struggles with it a lot of my young folks are resilient oh okay right so then they're young and then they mess up Mm -hmm. right oops (laughs) <laughs> perhaps that's Oof. part of the generation right that was an accident I'm not gonna oh my bad right i'll never grow up that girl in the bathroom again it's cool right that's and then cute. they never do do it again mm-hmm. right there there is right maliciousness versus ignorance right mm-hmm. we can teach the ignorant right we can teach the people that don't realize and ignorance mm-hmm. is usually you know one of those really nasty words but i think that I don't find it so nasty anymore. I, I know that I am ignorant of things. I know mm-hmm. that there are things that I'm missing. 
I think it's better to acknowledge that we don't know things. Then you can actually learn. It's it's the people who kind of are like, no, I know everything. You're not my dad. That's the people that move on quicker. The people that acknowledge their ignorance faster. Oh, okay. Yeah, I I could see that. that. Well, I always say to people when they're dating, like the the people you want to date are people who can take ownership for their choices. Because like, they may still make mistakes, but at least they can like own that they were a a jackass. It's really helpful. It's really helpful. I mean, it's still good to be like a nice person too. Don't get me wrong. We call it humility and it's really important in relationships. Oh, I've got, I'm so great at humility. (laughs) (laughs) Like I knocked the charts out of it. (laughs) For those of you who don't know, like that's a real play on words. totally messy all right well so you said you said on your paper that there's some family tradition with your mom and sister you want to talk about that or so some funny interesting stories uh, yeah so we've all worked in the field some way or somehow so um my sister worked at new horizons in columbia missouri and uh she did the administrative uh, assistance right at the front desk, but she handled folks that came in with mental illness all day long, frustrated, angry. They didn't have their meds, angry. Their insurance was messing up. And she was really good at being able to, you know, I'm really sorry about that. What can I do for you? Can I get you a drink of water? Right. Really kind, really empathetic. Uh, my mom, she works at Kids Harbor in Camden, Missouri, and they also have a satellite office in St. Roberts mm-hmm. and they do exams on children that have been abused and oh. take pictures and work with the the police and um the forensics examiners and the, all of those people right mm-hmm. so so my mom does that work so a lot of trauma so this is like a family tradition to always kind of be in some sort of therapeutic field yeah i think so do you have a lot of good stories you get to share <laughs> no we try not to share stories with each other i only share the funny ones and my mom doesn't really have funny Oh, so yeah. Try not to share her stories. Well, see, I guess I could see that, too. It's like, no, we're not talking about work. Let's talk about yeah, anything but. Anything but work. Well, plus, she doesn't <laughs> want to talk about orgasms with me and her daughter. <laughs> school see my mom she has no problem i probably am a sex therapist because my mother had no boundaries well that's because she was deaf so she didn't know they existed <laughs> my mom used to say she's a marriage counselor sex therapist. a sex right? therapist mom i haven't paid for that title yet <laughs> yeah but but hey you're there you're there yeah. you're doing your thing well so let me see i think we've covered a lot of it oh you did say that something about your husband doing oh. dna distra- extraction what's going on with that <laughs> i guess that's related to um my husband works um at a facility in the area where he does uh, dna and rna extraction okay. i don't know it's you know all that lab stuff and lab coat and mm-hmm. all this i don't know uh, so, so the uh, so he has a lab coat. There's some white clothes involved. Him a scientist, you know. In the, <laughs> oh, I'm a big fan lax, of the scientists, right? Which what he is? What's daddy? He's a scientist. That's cool. I really don't know what his title is, but we like to say that um, in our family, he extracts DNA, and I teach people how to replicate it. No, oh, I gotcha. <laughs> so you work hand in hand. Right. <laughs> we're a good pair. All right. Well, that's great. Uh, well, so we're kind of wrapping up towards the end here. Are there any final things like for any of our listeners, you'd want them to know either about what you do or like how you can be helpful? <laughs> oh, so if you're young and working in this field and you want to work towards this field, um, a lot of times you're going to have to work through your own issues first, right? Mm. I would say um, there are a lot of folks that come with values to the sexuality world that mm-hmm. really need to work on that before they start doing their therapy and their education so that they start, they don't, 
they don't throw their values out there while they're educating. It's yeah. really important to separate those two, your values from... How do you see that happening? What you, do you have any stories on that one? <laughs> values versus choices and consequences. Right? right. I have an idea about what I think my children should do, mm-hmm. right? Because I'm a pack animal. I teach my child, I teach my pack how to live in this world. But I don't teach my class how to live in the world, so I'm going to give them consequences and choices. I Their see. family teaches them how to live in the world. I just give them. So it's not telling them, this is what I think is right or wrong. It's saying, here, these are the outcomes of each path you take. Absolutely. And but, when I do individual therapy, I get the family values first mm-hmm. before I start doing the therapy. And I say, and in your home, this is what is expected from you. Uh-huh. And if you violate this boundary, this is the consequence. And that way I can do therapy a little bit better too, understanding... You know, so therapy, I understand their values in their home and I can work that way. In the classroom, I remember to take out my values. And that's the most important thing I want people to understand in this field, that it is not your values that go into the work that you do in sexuality. It Mm -hmm. is the choices and consequences you give people and the understanding of the world. That sounds great, Jessica. (laughs) Well, so how can people reach you if they want to get your help? Okay, so they can email me at jessica.maceland at empoweredcenter.com. Or they can call us up at Empowered, a center for sexuality. We're located in Clayton, Missouri. Or they can reach out to us through Facebook. We have a Facebook page. Okay, great. Well, and of course, I'm Angela Skirtu, and you can get me at www.therapistinstlouis.com. Um, please do be sure to add us on Facebook, review us on iTunes and send us your questions to about sex podcast at gmail.com. We've been talking with Jessica Naisland. Thank you very much. I got to write this time. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Cool, cool. I'm like, I, you have to get that right, Angela. <laughs> <laughs> um, but send us your questions and we may just answer them on air. So I'm Angela Skirtu. Stay kinky, St. Louis. <laughs>